St. Augustine was one of the early church fathers, and, uh, and he wrote in his confessions, You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. So, how is your heart? Not, not like how's your cholesterol levels or, or, uh, or you know, your beats per minute. Those are important too. But, but today the question is, how is your heart spiritually this day? Is it weighted down? Maybe for some it's broken. Maybe it's feeling good. Is your heart open or is it, does it kind of feel closed? Is it empty? Where does your where does your heart find its rest? I want to invite you to keep this question, really these questions about the heart in, in mind as we, we're going to take another virtual trip through Egypt today, this time to the Valley of the Kings. Are you ready? Let's, uh, let's pray. God of grace and wisdom, God, just in these moments today as we explore your word, widen our vision again to see what you see and open our minds to better understand your way and your word and your teaching. And God, expand our hearts. Expand our hearts to fully grasp the width and breadth and depth of your love and grace and to share it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Some of you uh, may have heard me say that as uh, Cheryl and I planned our travels through Egypt as part of the renewal leave, we intentionally didn't choose a Christian tour company. Now, we've been on several trips with, uh, with Christian tour groups in Nevada, fabulous experience, and we'll absolutely do that again. But uh, for this one, I really thought it would be interesting to, to travel without only a Christian lens and at the same time with people who may or may not be part of the church. And one of the fascinating discoveries for me were these moments on this trip when instead of a guide pointing something out, the guide would be talking about something, or we, on one occasion we were walking along without the guide, and I, without the guide, and I, and I just immediately sort of sensed a spiritual or biblical connection in, in these moments, in these places, as we explored them in Egypt. A couple of them we'll talk about next week: the Holy of Holies, as they talked about it in the temples, and how that becomes part of part of our model of, of worship today, the, the, the ritual baths that, uh, that would become the mikvah in, in Judaism, where people would bathe before they went into the temple. They would cleanse themselves. Here are a couple of other examples. We were exploring the uh, funerary temple of, uh, of Queen Hatshepsut, and, uh, and I saw these trees on the wall with a giant tree in the middle, and as I'm walking along, I'm like, oh, it, it just feels like the tree of life. And then later I asked the guide, and sure enough, it's the Egyptian tree of life. Does the tree of life sound familiar? 
right? Genesis 3, verse 9. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And then that same day in the Valley of the Tombs, we were exploring a tomb. And we came across this image on the wall, a serpent with feet, which is kind of an odd thing, right? Like, we don't think of serpents with, with feet. But I couldn't help uh, think about Genesis again in this moment. Again, Genesis 3, right? The serpent tempts Adam and Eve. And then there's this line near the end of that story about the curse on the serpent that says this, So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. Which is an interesting statement because it implies that before this, the serpent wasn't crawling on its belly. Perhaps it had feet. These, uh, these symbols date back to 1,000 or 2,000 B.C., even 2,500 B.C., right before Christ. Some of them date back to even before the Exodus. To see them here in Egyptian mythology was a reminder that some of them aren't unique to our faith. And I, I don't want to imply that they were somehow borrowed. Instead, right, as people, as, as people came to know that there was one God, one creator of, of all that is, right, these symbols and, and images were interpreted with that knowledge for us. That's why the understanding the context of the, of the land and the people and the mythology of Egypt can help us better understand God's word for us today. So, this brings us back to the heart. Well, almost back to the heart. We're actually going to take a little tour around the Egyptian afterlife first to give us some background. This is, a, this is the funerary temple of Queen Hatshepsut. And one of the things that makes Queen Hatshepsut famous is that you have to say her name carefully or you curse. <laughs> Queen Hatshepsut, I'm being careful was the second female pharaoh of Egypt, reigning for about 20 years, around 1450 BC. That's remarkable in itself, but what we really take note of is this, is this magnificent temple. This was the funerary temple. The pharaohs would build a temple like this, and the temple would have one single purpose with one single use, the mummification of the body after the pharaoh had died, and the funeral preparations, right? Imagine this, this amazing building would be built and it would be used one time and that one time was after the pharaoh was dead to get the body ready, to make the mummy essentially, right? And then the bodies would be taken over to the, to the valley on the, on the other side of this mountain in the background. So we might ask, like, what do we learn from this? Well, we could surmise that the pharaohs had a lot of extra money because they could build a building just for their funeral. Could you imagine if each one of us had a funeral home just for our eventual death? For our exploration, though, what we want to note is what this says about how important the afterlife was in Egyptian life for the people of ancient Egypt. This is the Valley of the Kings, this next picture, the the early pharaohs, as you 
may know from pictures of the pyramids, were buried in the, in the pyramids, but then instead of building structures above ground, the, the practice changed. Instead of putting all that effort into, into the building, the effort was put into the design of the tomb itself, and the tombs were dug out as caves. The project would often start as soon as the pharaoh took rule. He'd begin his tomb project. That's how important the afterlife was. This, uh, this next picture is the mummy of King Tut, King Tutankhamun. Uh, it's actually been returned to his own tomb. If you go to the Valley of the Kings today, you can see the, the mummy of, of King Tut. When the Pharaoh died, the, the body would be taken to that funerary temple and, and prepared for mummification. The organs would be taken out and dried, and then all but the heart would be put into jars to be put into the tomb with the body, the heart would actually be put back inside the body. Note this step, the heart being put back inside as we think about these questions about the heart today. We're going to return to this in a minute. This is uh, King Tut's tomb. King Tut died as a, as a boy, and so his tomb wasn't even close to ready. It's believed that he was actually put into a a tomb borrowed for him. For the other pharaohs, though, the, the tomb, the artists and workers, once, once the pharaoh died, would put all this effort into the, into the tomb. They'd work to finish it as much as possible. While that was happening, the body of the pharaoh would be treated with spices, embalmed, and then uh, covered in salt for 40 days, then stuffed with sand or linen, to make it more like a human form. And then at the, another 30 days, it would be left in this salt. And then at the 70-day mark, they would wrap the body head to toe in bandages, make the mummy as we think of it today. And you might ask, like, why all this care and, and detail? Well, it was believed that the body would be a vehicle for the spirit of the person once it reached the afterlife. But that trip to the afterlife, it wasn't easy. It was believed that you had to pass through the underworld to reach eternal life. And that passage, it was filled with danger. And so, for this reason, the Pharaoh, and actually anyone else who died, would be surrounded with the book of the dead, this book of spells that would help you understand this journey that you were about to take. And the Pharaohs in particular, they were ready for any contingency. Any, any of you, any of you engineers, you know the term redundancy, right? Redundancy is the idea that there's more than one way to, to do something so that if one system fails, you have another system that can, can do that. Well, the pharaohs believed in redundancy, and so they were given a book of the dead, scrolls that they were buried with, so they'd have it with them. But it was also written on the inside of the, of the chamber that held the coffin, on the inside of the sarcophagus. I think this next picture is the inside of the... Uh, uh, actually go one more, that's the inside of the sarcophagus. Uh, it would also be written in the, in the uh, coffin itself, and it would also be written on the jewels and furniture and pots that would be there. So the, the, the Pharaoh did not have to worry. There were plenty of places to turn if something went missing. And for good measure, the tombs themselves would tell the story of all the good deeds that the Pharaoh did so that anybody walking with them, anyone escorting them, would see all of the good that they had done. In fact, we know for a fact that some of them made up stories about how good they were. 
for their trip to the afterlife. It's also believed that the Pharaohs got a head start to the afterlife. Uh, everyone else had to make their way by foot, but the Pharaohs got to take a boat. Um, they were able to ride with Ra, that's this next picture, they were able to ra- ride with Ra through the underworld because they were moving toward divinity themselves. When the journey was complete, and this is the part we really want to get to, when the journey was complete, the dead would arrive at the hall of Ma'at, another god, where Anubis, which is the, the jackal-headed god, or in this case, the, the jackal, would, uh, would stand with them at the judgment. This wall inscription shows Anubis with the pharaoh at the end of this journey as they enter the hall of Ma'at. And then in the hall, the heart of the dead, right, we're back at that image of the heart, the heart of the dead would be weighed on scales against a feather from the god Ma'at. That's why the heart was left with the body, because it had a role to play in this, in this journey. If the heart was heavy, if it was filled with too many bad deeds and not enough good deeds, then that side of the scales would drop and the soul of the deceased would either be condemned to the underworld forever or immediately eaten by the goddess Amit, which you can see in this picture sort of standing there on the other side of Anubis. Um, It has the head of a crocodile, the front side of a lion, and the back of a hippo. Not a good way to go, right? If, however, the scales balanced, if there were enough good deeds, then the soul would join the kingdom of Osiris. Essentially, the soul would go on to paradise, a place among the gods. The heart is what mattered. The heart, for the ancient Egyptians, it was the seat of of wisdom of choices made and and choices not made. Now, you might be sitting there going, that is all fascinating, Pastor Brian, but what on earth does any of this have to do with the Bible? Well, this understanding of the heart, right, is, is wonderful context for us to understand a little more deeply what's going on between Moses and the Pharaoh and particularly within the Pharaoh's heart in this conversation that happens in the midst of the plagues. Right? Within this conversation, within this story of the ten plagues, again and again, we hear about Pharaoh's heart. In fact, it says that Pharaoh's heart was hardened multiple times. And hardened is the, our word in the English translation, but we miss in the English translation that there's a very subtle difference going on. There are two words that we translate both of them as hardened. One of them has a connotation of being strengthened. I'm thinking of the heart becoming stronger or or more courageous. The second of the words that we see in our Bibles as hardened, it means essentially kind of what we think of when we think of harder, more stubborn, more closed off to to anyone's input, more closed off to love. And then it's really easy to read through this story and miss something else that's going on, which is who is doing the hardening in the story about Pharaoh's heart, making the heart stronger or more stubborn. You're welcome to to read through this later if you want to get out your Bibles and just kind of peruse through and see where it says 
says this idea of the, a heart being hardened. Now, the first five plagues, as, uh, as the story goes through all five, all of, the, all of the statements of the heart becoming hard are about the Pharaoh doing it to Pharaoh's own heart. And it's back and forth. Sometimes the Pharaoh makes his own heart stronger. And sometimes Pharaoh knows that he is being stubborn. He makes his own heart stubborn. In those first five plagues, God does not intervene. Right? Pharaoh has the opportunity to make decisions. Pharaoh has free will. And God doesn't interfere with that free will. Pharaoh's decisions are Pharaoh's own. Then, as Pharaoh begins to waver after the sixth plague, most English translations again say God hardens Pharaoh's heart. But the Hebrew here is actually strengthen. God essentially says, Pharaoh, my goal is not to defeat you and have you give up. Right? My goal is for you to come to believe on your own in me as the one God, as the creator of all that is. I will make your heart stronger, right? not just harder, but I will make your heart stronger so you don't just give up because you're defeated or you think I'm right now the most powerful of all the gods. I want you to have the opportunity to see me for who I am. And this is Pharaoh's response. Right? He still refuses. And then the plague of, of hail and fire comes. And then this is, this is Pharaoh's response. It says, Then Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron, This time I have sinned. He said to them, The Lord is in the right, and I and my people are in the wrong. Pray to the Lord, for we have had enough thunder and hail. I will let you go. You don't have to stay any longer. For the first time in this story, Pharaoh can see who God is. See the error of his ways. He admits this. Right? And this could be the end of all of it. All Pharaoh has to do this at this moment is align his heart with God's will, with, with God's desire for justice and mercy for God's people and, and let the people go. Pharaoh, Pharaoh sees at this point who God is, but even though he sees it, even though he's now coming to know God, Pharaoh becomes stubborn. Pharaoh has too much to lose in his own control, in his own ways. In fact, not just Pharaoh, but it says those around him, their hearts were hardened as well. They won't see God for who God is. Then it says this, when Pharaoh saw that the rain and hail and thunder had stopped, he sinned again. He and his officials hardened their hearts. So Pharaoh's heart was hard and he would not let the Israelites go, just as the Lord had said through Moses. This is actually the first time in this story the, the narrator uses the term sin for what Pharaoh is doing. We might ask, like, why is it sinful now? Well, it's sinful now because Pharaoh has deliberately turned away from God. Pharaoh is aware of, of what he's doing. It's, it's his pride, it's his, his arrogance, it's his desire to have things his own way. And this, this is sin. 
refusing to treat God's people with respect and love and mercy. This is Pharaoh's sin. And then in Exodus 10, 1 to 2, the language shifts again. Right now, God will harden, and this time make stubborn Pharaoh's heart. The language changes. First, first God strengthened Pharaoh's heart. He wanted him to see him for who he is. But now that Pharaoh has seen who God is and has allowed his, his pride to, to get in the way of, of saying yes to God's way in his life, Right? The Lord says to Moses, Go to Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the hearts of his officials, so that I may perform these signs of mine among them, that you may tell your children and grandchildren how I dealt harshly with the Egyptians and how I performed my signs among them, and that you, you plural, you the Hebrew people, may know that I am the Lord. This time, God does make Pharaoh's heart stubborn. Until now, right, the story said that God was doing what God was doing so that Pharaoh and the people of Egypt would know who God is. But, but now, Rabbi Foreman wrote a book that I've been drawing from heavily for this series. Rabbi Foreman in his book, the Exodus you almost passed over says, now plan A has failed. Right? Plan A was, was for the Egyptian empire to embrace God and to let the people of God go and, and that God's glory would be defined that way. But Pharaoh, Pharaoh has now gone too far down the road of denying God and who God is and what God is doing. So now God's plan is to make God known through the Hebrew people, through the people of Israel. So God makes Pharaoh's heart stubborn. And in Bible studies, I don't know how many of you have been in a Bible study, but sometimes in Bible studies, someone will now inevitably ask, does that mean that God takes away Pharaoh's free will? Well, the rabbis say no. No, Pharaoh had free will all along. What's being stated here is just this reality that when we, when we get so caught up in our pride, the deeper and deeper we go, when we think we can do it ourselves, and when we, when we cast out any, anyone or particularly God wants to help, the, the further and further we go, the more and more callous, the more and more hard our heart becomes. The rabbis teach that God, God didn't even have to do anything for this to continue. This this was the natural course of, of pride in the human heart. It makes it hard. It closed Pharaoh off from any chance of being able to change course at this point. He is so convinced that he is right, so convinced and full of pride, so drunk on his own power and way that he's blind to any signs otherwise. Which leads us today back to this question to ask of ourselves, what about our hearts? Are our hearts strong or are they stubborn? Are our hearts soft or, or are they hard? Now, no analogy is perfect 
But I've been thinking about this question of our hearts and how we might, how we might think about it. And I just keep coming back to this image of clay. Right? When clay is, is soft, when it, has, when it has water in it, right, it can be formed and, and shaped. And, and it has to be soft for the, for the hands to work that clay into the, into the perfect vessel that it is intended to be on the potter's wheel. But when that clay is dried out, or when it is put in an oven and fired and dried that way, it can no longer be shaped. Right? It's going to be in the, in the form it is once it's fired, once it's dried out. It's going to be in that form forever. The faithful life is letting ourselves be molded by God. Right? The faithful life is leaving room for the, for the Holy Spirit to shape us in our relationships and our, our conversations. Sin is thinking, oh, you know what, I've got it now. I am, I am perfect as I am. And, and putting ourselves in the kin or drying ourselves out and saying, this is the shape I'm going to be for the rest of my life. Casting God out of that equation. Right? Repentance or turning back to God is allowing ourselves to be soft and molded, to soften our hearts so that God can keep molding us into who God wants us to be on our way to perfection, but not reaching perfection on our own, only, only with God. We can ask ourselves this question, am I open to God, to the, to the Holy Spirit, speaking in, into my conversation and my relationships? And I, am I open to God continuing to shape and mold me? Or have I made myself a judge behaving as though a God? Are we still being molded? Or have we decided we have it all figured out? We've put ourselves into the kiln and decided we don't need God to shape us any further. So how is your heart? Sometimes I think we present the Christian life a little bit more like the Egyptian idea is like a ledger where our good deeds have to outweigh our bad deeds on the scales. Right? And, our, and our deeds matter. What we do matters. Don't hear me say that, that what we do doesn't, doesn't matter. But the sum total of the Christian life is not is not a ledger, right? We believe that the sum total of the Christian life is the grace of Jesus Christ, that, that God would send Jesus so that we'd have this invitation to soften our hearts, to open our hearts to God's love and let God's love shape us and mold us in any moment to, to look to Jesus to align our hearts again with God's will and God's way for us. Our ledger, it, it may be weighted down with, with past sin. Right? But all that is forgiven when we align our hearts with Jesus. Our ledger is clean. Jesus simply asks us, give me your heart. Center your heart in my love. I'll never forget, I was in worship service with youth. I've maybe even told this story before as a young guy named Tony, and Tony was sitting next to me, and the presenter had talked about this, this 
idea of wiping the ledger clean and this clean slate and, and letting your heart be clean. And we had sung Amazing Grace and worship was over and Tony is sitting next to me. He's a, he's a big guy, like big guy, like could have been a football player, but didn't want to play football because he was kind of gentle, big guy. And uh, Tony is sitting next to me and he is just weeping, just weeping. And I turned to Tony and, and I said, I don't know what I said. I, that was early in youth ministry. Y'all right, man, or something like that. It wasn't the right, wasn't the right thing to say. I'm like, you all right, Tony? And he goes, he said these words to me. He's like, is it true? Like, I've done so much bad stuff. Like, I, can God really forgive me? He was asking, can God really wipe my ledger clean? He was asking, is my heart too hard? And I looked right at Tony as a, another one of our group came up and put an arm around him so he could feel that love of God. I looked right at him and I said, it's absolutely true. Just give your heart to God. God forgives. Open your heart to God. Be made clean and whole again. Today is Confirmation Sunday here at Clay Church. And this year, like every year on this day, our, our young people will take vows of membership. At the core, at the very core, these vows are aligning their hearts with the heart of Jesus. And I always think Confirmation Sunday is a great day for all of us to hear that same invitation. Let me offer that invitation to you today to align your heart again with Jesus. And simply to ask, in what areas of your life do you need to, do you need to cleanse, to purify, ultimately to soften your heart? In what ways has, has your pride, in what ways has your busyness in life, what other things have gotten in the way of giving your heart to Jesus. And let me just invite you right now, if you, if you want to be made clean again, just close your eyes and, and put your hands on your heart. And then just invite you to, to pray, pray this silently with me, God. God, I sit here this morning and I offer you my heart. I offer to you those things that weighed it down, those, those sins of my life. And I pray that you will create in me a clean heart, God. That you'll renew and make room for your Holy Spirit to move in my life. That you'll transform me by that love into the person you call me to be. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.